1: Hi and thank you JJ for that introduction and I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. The United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Norway, Germany, India, Israel, Australia and France just to name a few. I appreciate each one of you and whenever you leave your comments and reviews it really means a great deal to me and I personally respond to each one so i Trust that you will continue to do that and I thank you so much. My guest today is somebody that I have been wanting to interview for quite some time. The first time that I put the word out on LinkedIn that I was looking for people who had endured trauma, but were able to overcome it and soar above it to become successful, Maya was one of the first to respond. I watched her video, and I chatted with her, and I was overwhelmed with what this young woman had to endure, but it was her attitude towards life that really grabbed my heart. When you hear her story today, I am sure you're going to agree with me that it was one of the most compelling stories that you will have ever heard. You will be touched, I promise you. You will be encouraged, I promise you, and you will be inspired. Maya Kazajic is an interla- internationally recognized, motivational keynote speaker. I have watched some of her uh, videos of her speaking engagements, and you are about to be, I want to say entertained, but no, you won't you won't be entertained. You are going to be challenged. She is an entrepreneur, a, st- a strategist, and above all, a survivor. She has taken the lessons of a life forever altered by what could have been catastrophic wounds of war and parlayed them into a vision and passion for providing the strategies and solutions that people and organizations need to create positive, inspired change in their personal and professional lives. That sounds like quite a feat. Welcome, Maya.
2: Thank you very much, Carol.
1: So we meet. This is a treat. <laughs> Let us start by sharing what your life was like in Bosnia before your accident.
2: Well, before accident, I always tell people it was a perfect childhood. I had I had the perfect childhood, and I never knew it. Um, it's I grew up in a small town and in. in it's not medium sized city actually, uh, in ex Yugoslavia. Um, we, um, actually had everything that we could possibly dream of. It was just like a a really good system and really good setup. My parents, um, they, um, my dad is a nurse practitioner. My dad, my mom is an accountant. Um, so they worked really good jobs and, uh, somehow my dad had actually figured out that, with his buddies that if if, instead of working eight hour shifts or whatever, they could work, you know, every fifth day, 24 hours. So he actually went to work every fifth day. Uh, The rest of the four days he actually stayed home and my mom worked. She was in a CPA for all the city high schools. So she was off during summer. So during summer we went, had really great vacations. Every weekend we went someplace and just explore the country. It's unbelievable. Um, We ate locally, seasonally, organically uh, without actually realizing it, you know, you just it's when you lose those things that you kind of appreciate them like everybody else. It was really a picture perfect childhood that I couldn't have had a better family uh, and connections because my family is huge. Uh, my dad has four sisters and two brothers, and my mom has two sisters and one brother, and all of them have kids and at least two kids. So there's lots of little cousins. You know, we're all kind of ear to ear next to each other lining up, and it's just really amazing.
1: Okay, so tell this. continue. Tell, what about uh, your schooling and uh, anything else in your life that you would like to share prior to that?
2: Uh, well, the school was, um, it was really great. It was much tougher than here, I have to say. Um, we, we didn't do a lot of multiple choice tests in school. <laughs> everything was – you had to regurgitate information that you learned. It was very tough. In fact, everything that I've learned – up to my high school in Bosnia, I actually used it all the way up until my fourth year in college in the States. It was really, it was, yeah, it was the fourth year in college in the United States that I started to actually get new information. And that information was actually related to my specific major, which was psychology and it. But, um, up to that point, I, you know, it was really, we had a very good base. It was very tough. It was a back in the day, you know, the way it used to be in the United States back in the day, wherein teachers had authority, you know, and if, mm. and if the teacher said that, you know, your, 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 your son or your daughter is not doing well in school, and they need to change. The parents said, Oh, i got to talk to them instead of yelling at the teacher and saying, you know, no, exactly. So Defending it was, them. yeah, exactly. So it was, it was tough, but it was, you know, all, all, uh, all of those things obviously paid off because you know it, it allowed me through all of my recovery to not have to concentrate too much on studying because I already pretty much knew the topics. Um, so that was really wonderful. The school was, was you know, it was tough but it was great. Um, I have to say one thing about my school though. I I'm extremely co- close with my first cousin, my mom's sister's daughter. Uh, Sandra and, and we are about six months apart um, in, by age, and she was going to first grade, and I, it was too early for me to go. And she and I had never been separated from from the day we were both born. We've always kind of grew up together, and and when they were we went to kindergarten together and pre-K and all that. And when it was time to go to first grade, we were going to separate because she's going to first grade, and I and I'm still not ready for next till until next year. So I said, I begged my parents, and I said, I want to go with her. And they actually talked to the principal and asked if, um, you know, if I could go. And the principal said if she can learn how to read and write, she can go. <laughs> so actually, at five years old, I learned how to read and how to write so I, can, so I can go with her. And the funny thing is, in Bosnia, we actually had two alphabets. We we had Latin alphabet, which is what most Americans know. And then we have Cyrillics, which is some things that you would use in Russia. So we actually had one week we, we would actually use Latin and one week we would use Cyrillics. Wow. But that's only after like the fourth grade. The first three grades, they assign a letter to you. They assign one. And that's the one you study the most those first three years. And then after that, you do it. So I learned Latin because it was just a little bit more common everywhere and around the world and so on. And when I got to the first grade, even though I learned how to read and write, I got there and I was assigned Cyrillic. (laughs) And I had to start start over again. (laughs) So that's when you mentioned school, I thought, okay, that's the first story that came to my mind. That's good. I appreciate you sharing
1: that. Now, what did you major in in uh, college?
2: I majored in psychology and I kind of minor in, in um, computer science because that's how I paid uh, for my schooling. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So
1: what was your country like before your accident? Were you living in fear? Paint us a picture of that.
2: No, we were not living in fear. We were, it was the most peaceful country. Like we did not have any murders. In fact, there was like one murder in like 20 years and it was some crazy guy and they got out of the crazy hospital and hit someone with a car. Like it wasn't anything gruesome. I mean, there was just really no crime. We, we walked in, in you know, in the middle of the night in the streets and no, nope, no issues. Everybody was com- Everybody drove their cars. We had my family had two cars, which was unheard of. Most families in Europe have one car and then they share it. But my my family just happens to have two cars, but we walked everywhere. Um, it was really just that what you imagine that picture perfect European city childhood where everything is just seemed so right. Um, we were mostly concerned about when what are we gonna eat next and where are we gonna eat it and who are we gonna eat it with. You know, that was just mm. It was just all about family time. My family in particular is very close and we would get together for a play bingo. And, you know, it's just for small amounts of money. What would be cool Into a dollar, $5 everybody puts in and then we play bingo and it was just amazing. It was awesome. Every weekend, the city where I was in actually is divided by a river. There's a huge river running through it. And, the city is like the city of Phoenix. It gets really hot in the summer, like 140 degrees, but it's that dry heat. But the river, the source of the river is right there, right outside the city. So the, the river, the water comes out, it's really freezing. So what you do is you, um, if you're really hot, you get in the river, you can't even put your head under water for longer than three to five seconds. It starts to hurt your head because it's that cold. And it's so nice because it's like a natural air conditioning. When you sit by the river, you could feel the cold breeze coming. Mm, it's right. so really just like a natural AC. And then not to mention that we were about an hour and a half, two hours from um, Adriatic Sea, which everybody, I think, knows now because Croatia is getting a little bit more popular in the travel world. And Adriatic Sea is beautiful. You know, Italy is across the sea. Across the way of the adriatic sea adriatic sea but lots of italians come to our side because it's pure it's pristine these mm. beautiful waters and just really unbelievable country to even go visit now i mean that that whole genocide that happened it was like a blimp a little bit of a nightmare that most people right now are wondering why did this happen how did this happen and what the hell did it just happen
1: so tell us what happened
2: well, it was really you know it, it's it war is it I don't know anybody anywhere else, but I know that it's not like when we're war here in the United States here in the United States, you watch the news and somebody's gonna come on the you know a president is gonna come on or somebody's gonna come on the news and say, "Hey, you know we're war with such and such country, and we're gonna bomb' them, or we're not whatever the case may be." And then you just flip the channels and, and that's it. You kind of move on and you go have your dinner and that's the end of that war conversation. But on the other side, like when it was happening for us, it's not so sudden. Nobody gets on the news and says, guess what? Today we're at war. Mm. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It's. It, I always say it's like boiling the frog.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They slowly start doing it little by little. And the number one way they do that is creating and generating fear and Fear is extremely strange to to my people before war nobody understood it we were taught to love our neighbors and understand them not to fear them and it slowly started off by media putting in things that made people fear one another. And another thing they did is they started differentiating between between people. So they say, oh, this person is Muslim, and they're Bosnia, this person is Catholic, and they're Croatian, and this person is Greek Orthodox, and they're Serbian, and you know, they have different beliefs, and they're gonna come get you, you know. To Muslim people, they say, you know, Serbians are gonna come get you, and, and creation's gonna come get you. And to, to the creations they say, "Hey, we're gonna have um, these people come and get you." So so everybody starts fearing a little bit anything that's different from them. And slowly, that kind of, that fear just just kind of gradually grows into into somebody reacting. And the way it happened in my city was actually a setup. It was they took a fire truck. And then you just lit it up and let it explode on an empty street. It, there, was no, there was no injuries. There was nothing. But it was just enough to create this crazy fear where people started, didn't know what to do. And what happens is in fear, then you end up doing things that you would never, ever do or thought you would be able to do if you weren't afraid for your life. And then eventually that leads to one victim and of the whole thing. And soon as there's that one victim, there is a problem because that victim is somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's husband, somebody's wife. And then you get into the revenge and it really happened. And then it kind of escalates and it escalates so quickly that you don't even know what's going on. To the point of, you know, having 250,000 people dead.
1: Is that how many it affected?
2: Yeah, whenever I check I often check this task to look at it but last time I read it was 250,000 people that were killed and injured and millions were you know expelled from their homes and you know spread around the world for different reasons.
1: And what was the motivation? You know, what did they want to accomplish? The
2: the motivation the motivation that we always heard was that There was actually a joke and running joke before the war in the city where they said, you know how we had that river and they going down the city and they said, we're going to have the Serbians want to take the left side of the city, left of the river, and Croatians want to say, take the right side of the city. And they're going to dump all the Bosnians in the river and let them wash out to the sea. So the, the motivation was essentially regaining this property, which they believed 500 years ago or thousand years ago belonged to them. Okay. It was taken from them. And they want they wanted to get it back. But that's what we were thinking during the time that the war was happening. But you know now, twenty some years later, when you look at the situation and you see what happened, and you you kind of do a analysis of post-mortem, if you will, we realized that the whole thing was kind of set up and it was all driven by money and had nothing mm. to do with anything other than money and politics. So it was just all very much calculated, and, and that's why the jokes came, and that's why we actually had certain shows that they would show. Um, there were like um, almost like a Saturday night live shows every night, and they, they showed as though there was a war happening in a country. And it was ironic how almost identical it was to the places, to the names of people and everything. It was crazy.
1: So what were you personally going through during this time? Were you buying into the fear? Was your family strong? How did they react?
2: Um, depends on, you know, my family is large. And when you get to that place, it's it kind of gets interesting. And being that my family is so large, um, it Um, we had a mix of Catholics, Greek Orthodox and Muslims all married and in the families. And and we don't have like we have we know one person that got divorced. We don't have divorce. My parents have been married for 40 years almost. Um, All of my aunts and uncles. So so for us, um, the, the divorce and splitting the family is a huge, huge thing. And uh, we all lived within, you know, 10, 15 minutes of each other. So when the war started, you had this kind of weirdness. You, you, I love my uncle, who just happens to be Greek Orthodox. It didn't, you know, it didn't make him any different. Right. When that happened. So my family was perfectly fine, although there were some families that got split up. Um, one of my uncles actually happens to be in a Serbian army. And he was he was like at the top, one of the generals or something like that, pretty important. And he called my aunt and my father and said, There's gonna be a mess in Mostar, which is where I was from. You gotta get your whole family out. And my aunt just listened because those were his kids and she said, Okay, fine, and she sent them. And they left they left most are in Bosnia at that time. But my dad laughed. He's like, are you kidding me? Nobody's who's going to shoot anybody. You, there's no way there's going to be a joke. So no, he didn't, he tried not to buy into the fear. We we weren't afraid. We we just couldn't believe it would ever happen.
1: And then it happened.
2: And then it happened, you know, and it was funny because my family, we lived in a, in a condominium on the left side of the river. So the, the city is actually surrounded by mountains as well. And up from the left side of the city, down from the mountains, came Serbian army. And they killed, raped, and after that killed and burned anything that was in their path. And we escaped, you know, from there, literally swimming across the river and just running away. Whoever was there to basically saying, I'm not going to leave my home, I don't have anything to fear, they killed them. Wow. And um, that's, you know, my family just happens to get out. And we got out and and um, they burned
1: everything. Did they have to leave everything behind?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We left everything behind and we um, they burned everything and they bombed it and it was just awful. So we left. And during that time we were sort of refugees and trying to figure out how to survive and and after months of that all of a sudden they just retreated. They mm. retreated and they left the left side and they retreated and went back to the to the mountains right at the top. And little by little weeks by weeks would go by and there was no shooting nobody was shooting anything and it was perfectly fine. Um, Greek Orthodox, Serbians were away and there was nothing to worry about. Right. And so my family and a bunch of other families started slowly to rebuild, to go back from the right side. We stayed in my aunt's house and we would go every single day in the morning and we would work and try to repair and clean up as much as we possibly could to just to get it back ready for living. Right. And we would do that every morning and come back in the evening because there was no power. Everything was all the power. Everything was shut off. There was nothing going on there. So after I don't know how many months of that, one day we just happened to be there at this condo, at our condo, and cleaning it up. And all of a sudden you started – you heard what you haven't heard for so long, which was Mm. the bombs dropping and the shooting. And it was just this craziness. And we just didn't know what was happening. And it turns out what was happening that Croatians now on the other side wanted to claim the right side.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: And they have decided that now uh, anybody who was not Croatian Catholic or didn't agree with that mentality was going to be dead, taken to concentration camp or expelled to the left side. And basically from that we resulted is 60,000 civilians. They were expelled to the left side of the city. They bombed all the bridges. So you couldn't really go back and forth. And um, we were cut off from any communication from outside. We had no food, no water, no electricity, no outside contact, no medicine. And the left side, just to kind of give you an idea, is is maybe 3% of the whole city. So – and it's all residential. There was only one commercial building, which was a water-testing laboratory, which was a two-story building that maybe had, you know, 10 rooms, 10 offices, and that's it. Everything else was residential, and it has just been prior couple months been burnt and destroyed by the Serbian army that came from the other side. And what they did is they put – these towers with loud speakers at the edge of the river, and they pushed this creation propaganda. Wow. And it, all you, you could hear that constantly going. And I think that was twofold. One was for us to listen to it because it's the only thing you could hear. And the second thing was that their people over there didn't know that they were bombing us. You, know, oh. you don't just hear that because at that point we were getting bombed now all the time. The bombing started to back up again. They started doing the snipers and everything. So. And yet you stayed. We had no, at this point there was no option. Okay. There was, now we were surrounded by two armies and there was no getting in and there was no getting out. In fact, um, during that period, we were like that stuck for many, many months and during that period, UN came in with a bunch of media, and they got stuck too, really? and they couldn't get out. And that turned into a whole other ordeal, right. but they, even they couldn't get out because they just – there's no way out. You know, you've got, you've got armies on two sides, and you're stuck in this maybe 20-block radius of residential housing, and that's it. You've got to figure out how to survive.
1: Do you remember what was going through your mind as a young girl at that time? And how old were you?
2: At that time, I was, you know, 15, just turning onto 16 years old. Not quite 16, but just close to it. And I, I, I remember exactly what was going on in my mind. And, and it was so completely separate from me, I had no thought that it would ever affect me. I thought that the whole war is politics and it's a world of grown-ups, and it doesn't affect children. Mm. That that was really, I was completely disconnected to, and it didn't matter to me that it was war, and I figured, you know what, sometimes they'll work it out. I'm a kid, now I get to play. (laughs) So, And the only thing, I was like, okay, there's no school, so I'm good with that. (laughs) What an attitude.
1: (laughs) And what about your parents? What were they going
2: through? You know, At the time, I never even considered what they were going through. And now as an adult, when I think about what they must have been thinking, knowing them a little bit differently and a little bit more deeply as an adult, I just shudder to think what my mom was going through, not being able to feed the children. Because the thing is, what my mom did was, was unbelievable. It is, it is such a reflection of, of how amazing and perfect my mom and any mom is. I mean, the strength that the woman and the power of, of, of a mother can be pulled out in those situations is unbelievable. But during the entire time, I mean, we had nothing to eat. You know, we we just we would go outside and try to figure out you know, if we can eat this grass or that grass and, and what's going to be for dinner that day. But somehow she actually made a meal every single day and she would set the table up with the white tablecloth with all of the utensils and all the plates and everything like there was no war and not one time were we allowed to act like there was there was a war going on hmm. it was it was expected of us to behave as though Things was as normal and as usual. So whatever there was going on through their head, obviously they were aware of it, but they made it unbelievably normal during that period of time. And it's kind of crazy to say, but it's one of my favorite times in my life. Like, I love it. I love to think about that time. I love people. I love I love camaraderie because when you have nothing, we're stripped away from everything, Any possession any material things and you're just down with 60,000 civilians you make really good friends you make friends for life you connect on these personal levels that you create relationships and friendships for lifetime and when I think about that I think about it all fondly
1: and that's part of what we're going to talk about uh, later, that I mentioned in the beginning as your attitude. So what you're doing right now is you are painting a picture of, first of all, your mother, who obviously gave you unbelievable life lessons and strength and just coping skills without you probably even realizing that she was teaching you.
2: Absolutely. I, I have been shocked and grateful when as an adult, I realized that and how much influence my family my father and my mother had around me as a support system to to be able to just basically face any any obstacle you know sort of with your head held high and just go through it and find the best in best in any situation
1: you just hit the nail on the head finding the best in any situation your attitude yeah now through along with uh, well first of all let's back up What happened that
2: that day? D-Day. 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 You know, it's funny. It's called D-Day. One time the Discovery Channel contacted me and they said, you know, we want to do a documentary about, you know, some stories and your story sounds interesting. And they said, you know, so the stories, the the show is called, the documentary is called The Worst Thing That Ever Happened to Me. And I said, sure, I'll do it. I have no problem doing it. But I said, that's not the worst thing that happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> As in, I said, I can th- tell you a lot more things that happened to me in the States. They're a lot worse than that. But, you know,
1: we're not going <laughs> to so, go there, right? <laughs>
2: yeah. But that's, you know, but it, it the D-Day. So I like much better D-Day instead of the worst thing that ever happened to me. Uh, because quite frequently, I think it's actually the best thing that ever happened to me. But
1: it formed um, your life and made you who you are.
2: Oh, absolutely. Well, if you don't mind me just telling you this one one particular incident, it was right before war when we were talking about that fear. um, And it was just right getting on that borderline where every like week you might hear one bomb explode. So it's not quite there, but it's almost there. And my family and I, we wanted to go see my aunt at her house. And like I said, we walked everywhere. And we went to walk to my aunt's house, and as we walked outside, my father said, okay, let's separate. And I said, what do you mean let's separate? We always, four of us always walk together. He said, well, I'm going to go first, then your brother, then your mom, and then you. So that way, if the bomb falls, it doesn't kill all of us. Oh, my goodness. And I remember walking that entire walk and thinking, okay, if I had to close my eyes and pray, where would I want that bomb to fall? You know, you got to You got to pick. And I'm like, you know, at the end, I'm like, I hope it falls on my lap. I hope it happens to me because I just couldn't imagine losing any of them Mm -hmm. or anything bad happening to them. That was like maybe a year or two before I got injured. So when I got injured, to be honest with you, it was almost like a relief because every family during that time that was there has a tragedy, a bad one. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was the one in my family, and it worked out perfect. You know, it it was the odds were that maybe you know my rest of my family would be okay. Then
1: I understand that totally. That's amazing that as a young girl that you could think that way. Okay, so walk us through what happened D-Day. So
2: so D-Day, I, my mom, my brother, and I, we were outside and kind of playing. He was across the street with his friends hanging out, and I was. Um, I was hanging out with my friends and my mom called me up because I never had enough time to eat. You know, for me, the war and not having enough food was perfect because it, I just, I'm just one of those kids that just doesn't eat. So she called me up and she said, you're the only one that didn't eat. Come on up. You got to get something to eat. So I went upstairs to our third floor condo and she'd set up everything. I could see like a little soup and, and it uh, was all waiting for me, and I went to the bathroom to go wash my hands. And as I'm washing my hands, now, as I'm washing my hands, it's not it's not an easy thing. There's no spigot. you got to have a bucket, and you're pouring it over, and you've got this little piece of soap that looks like it's from 1945, and you're trying to use up very little because you don't know how long you're going to need it for. So as I'm washing my hands, I hear my friends talking outside, and I jump up on the bathtub, which was near, and look outside the window. And it's three stories down, and there's four of my friends chatting. And I start talking to them. They're talk- They're talking. We're, we're trying to decide what we're going to do that evening in a basement because we don't have electricity, and if it requires light, then we need to make the lamps, and it's a whole process. So that's kind of what we're chatting about. But because I was on the third floor, I was yelling, they couldn't really hear me. I just said to them, Hey, I'm going to be down in a second and we'll talk about it. And as I walk outside, I go through kind of the hallway and look over to the dining room and the kitchen area, and I can see my mom washing dishes, and her back is turned towards me. And I'm thinking if I ask her to just go downstairs, do it, she's not going to let me because she's going to want me to eat and then go. So being the smartest kid ever, I decided I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run downstairs really quick. She won't even know that I was gone. I'm gonna run down, decide what we're gonna do, and come back up and she won't even know that I she won't even miss me. And literally that's exactly what I did. I ran down the steps and I still remember those marble steps and running like three at a time and and I wish those last moments, you know, came with the post-it notes because I didn't realize that would be the last time I would ever run. And I would have made it so much better, you know. Mm. And I ran downstairs. And I walked up to right in front of the building where where my five of my friends were sitting. And they were all hiding behind this wall. It was was maybe a five-foot cement wall that doesn't um, allow shrapnel to go through. So they were behind that wall. But I really... Like I told you, I had this nonchalant attitude towards war because I didn't, I didn't think anything would happen to me because it had nothing to do with me. So I sat right on top of that wall, and um, the moment I sat there, all of a sudden I, I, I just started choking, and I couldn't understand why I was choking, and, and I could feel something scraping my throat, and and I had no idea what was going on, and then just as as like the smoke cleared, I kind of started to look around. And it's funny because at that moment, it's almost like your primitive brain takes over. And it allows you only to take little bits of information at a time. It doesn't let you just look up and take it all in. And I I remember looking at my feet and my legs, and and I remember seeing they're all bloody. But at this point, I still don't know what's going on. All I was really trying to concentrate on is breathing and trying to just breathe and stay alive. And as I could feel myself breathe a little bit easier and and the smoke starts to clear, I could see my legs are all bloody and it's just not looking good. And I could feel a little bit of throbbing in my arms and my hands. And then I look in a little bit bigger circle and I see all five of my friends just splattered in pieces. Oh, and. Ironically enough, the friend of mine that was, that was sitting there, she was 20, and she, in her lab, had her four-year-old daughter. She was pregnant, and on the first floor of their building was her husband, also chatting with us. So, the way I was a few minutes before, and he was blown by all the shock into the refrigerator, and he ran downstairs to try to help him. And he, he looked at the whole scene and he started apologizing to me and screaming and saying, I'm sorry, Maya, I can't help you. My family's dead. Oh. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh, my God, his family's dead. He just had family five minutes ago and I was going to play backgammon with her. And now they're just gone. They're just not there. And right above him was my other friend. She was my age, and she saw the whole thing, and she ran downstairs to try to help, but she was still young enough to where she saw the scene, she would get scared, and she would run screaming back up. And she kept running up and down just screaming. And then I looked into a little bit bigger circle. Like I'm still not really making anything out of this. Like I'm still not connecting that there was a bomb there. And then I make that bigger circle and I see another lady who just happens to have gone to the river and got two buckets of water so she could have it home. And she had two buckets of water and she was standing, walking towards the entrance of the building. But the shrapnel had picked her up while she was standing and killed her instantly. And her eyes were open and she was standing. But she was dead.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: And it was this oddest thing when I'm, I remember looking and thinking, your you brain is not prepared to see a dead person standing. I mean, that's just like something in the movies you you brush off. And eventually just the gravity kind of pulled her down to her knees, and just she fell down to the ground. And then I looked even the bigger circle, just kind of looking around wondering. And, and then I saw my brother right across the street. And I, I see my brother looking, and it was that moment. It was like I went into his body, and through his eyes, I saw his big brown, his hazel eyes. They were filled with tears. And he was looking at us kind of in shock, and I remember looking through him and thinking, wow, a bomb has just exploded. It was a rocker, rocket-propelled grenade that had just exploded about five, six feet from me killed all of my friends instantly and I was severely injured so that was the day now my mom upstairs she felt a detonation from the grenade and she just assumed I was upstairs so she was going to find me to tell me this is why you need to stay in the house and she went to my room and I wasn't there. She went to another room and I wasn't there. And she went mm. to another room and I wasn't there. And and you can imagine as a mother, she, she was just fearing that the worst had happened, that I had gone downstairs without her knowing. And then she looked outside the window and saw this pool of blood and dead bodies. And in the middle of it, here I am. And I'm sure I never talked to her about it, but I can't imagine that she thought I was alive. Um... And she ran downstairs. And, and one thing that they tell you is that when the bomb falls, don't go up to help someone because there's probably another one coming mm. shortly. But when you're a mom, you just don't, you just don't think about that. She just ran downstairs to my arms and sh- started hugging me and crying and saying, "Oh my God, Maya, you're alive!" And just, you know. And I said, "I'm okay. I'm okay." And, and that was it.
1: Amazing. Just amazing what you had, you know, I don't even know. I'm speechless. Carry on.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I'll tell you what, this is, this is what I talk about when I, when I'm often talking to people about change and challenges and overcoming obstacles. Yes, Yes. Like if you look at that situation right there. Um. You know, it, it looks like a pretty dire situation. So I ask people about positivity. You know, I, I'm kind of tired of people going to Facebook and posting, you know, my, cap, cup, my cup is half full and the hanging their Hello Kitty posters. But when the real stuff happens, they crumble. Yes. And, and what I always tell them, okay, how do you suppose I should stay positive in that moment? Right there. My mom is hugging me right there. I'm in the midst of a pool of blood. My world has just been literally literally, and physically and emotionally been blown to pieces. How do you stay positive in that? That's, that's the million-dollar question. And the answer to that is perspective. You have to just change your perspective. And the good news about it is that perspective is choice. So you can choose which perspective you're going to put on it. Am I going to sit there like a victim and say, poor me, look what happened to me? Or am I going to sit there and say, wow, I survived. I could have looked at my brother and said, why did this happen to me? My brother was doing exactly the same thing, not even 50 yards away. And he's okay with his friends. Why didn't this happen to someone else? Why did it happen to me? I could have taken that victim approach. Or I could have just looked around me and saw five dead bodies and said, I'm lucky. I'm a hero. This is amazing. And that's the approach and the perspective that I chose to do.
1: And you have done that your entire life, obviously.
2: Absolutely. For me, it's innate. For me, it is built in. I don't think about it.
1: Yes. You had mentioned, well, is there anything else you want to share right along with that? I mean, you said that you you share this when you speak publicly. Is there anything else along those lines?
2: Uh, No, that's, I mean, that's it. I just want to make sure that people get that positivity is a matter of perspective and perspective is a matter of choice.
1: I really like that. I'm going to put that on your web page when we do this up as well because I think that is essential and we could probably do a whole show expounding just on that and I also appreciated what you said about the victim versus victor attitude and if you see yourself as a victim you will always be a victim and no matter what happens to you even if you are a victim you can be a victor and it's exactly what you said a matter of perspective which is a matter of choice That is huge. And when people can grasp that, they can soar above their circumstances, which obviously you have done. Maya, tell us about the seven building blocks that you were uh, sharing in your bio.
2: Well, I want to first make sure that audience understands that these are seven building blocks, not steps. A lot of people um when i when I mention them, they try to think of them in steps and and I could see that it's, it's a it's a natural way of for us to be thinking and and sorting things out. Uh, but the importance of them being building blocks is that you, if you remove a, one building block on a bottom or during the process, everything starts to crumble. It becomes a little bit unstable. And that's why this is important to know the different steps. You can complete one and move on and forget about what you just did. Uh, this is not the case. So these seven building blocks, um, like I said, I, I've spent many, many years trying to understand exactly how I got to where I got to and try to help people get anywhere they want to go in life, Uh, no matter what it is, personal, business, professional, uh, economical, psychological, I think you can do anything. And uh, I came up with these seven building blocks.
1: Okay, well, let's hear them.
2: Um, The first building block is, is building your support system. And um, what you'll notice is that um, as with this building block and all of them subsequently coming um, they are all going to be very important on their own and you will see other successful people who have used one or two consciously but however in order for anything to be successful they will have used they will have need to use all of them in order Uh, they just may not realize it so the support system being in the first building block, is, is getting around you individuals that can actually help you and provide you support, no matter what that is. And throughout my years, what I've tried to realize is that that support needs to be quality support. You can't just surround yourself with numbers and expect to say, oh, I have a great support system. Um, a lot of us today are distant from each other. Um, many of us don't even know our neighbors. And that means that our support is dwindling little by little. So this is a very important, one of the most mm-hmm. important steps you can actually have is actually building that support system. What I found that to be is, um, between all the personalities that we have as, as human beings, about four individuals is what you should have around you that provide you with support. And the way I have divided them is um, two individuals who gives you positivity, no matter what they tell you they provide you support and then tell you you're good at something even if you're not you know <laughs> quite frequently in that case this is my mom you know right, a lot right. of us have parents or kids that no matter what you do you know you're just amazing and that's wonderful and we need that those are ego boosters that we need to have in order to do something successful successful but then the other two the other half of your support system needs to be someone who is realistic okay who is gonna cr- cut through the BS and not tell you where you're good at but tell you where you're bad at because w- when you're good at something you don't necessarily need to get better at it you need to know what you're bad at what you suck at that's right if you will so you can make them better. And when you have those two individuals, or, or more than two if you can, that tell you, hey, here's where you're lacking and this is what you need to be working on, um, then, you start the, then you start actually improving in areas where you never thought you could. And what happens then is, quite frequently, what has happened in my case, is that individuals actually, their, their weakest link becomes actually one of the strongest. You, you figure out, oh, okay, I'm really bad at, at numbers. And then you say, well, I'm going to go concentrate on that. And then you start working on it, working on it, working on it. And sooner sooner than not, you realize that actually you're really good at it. Now maybe you're even better at numbers than at writing. And that's what happens with the support system. Interesting. And, uh,
1: just, I'll just interject this here. Sometimes I think uh, people don't want that support system because they do not want to hear the negatives. Is that a possibility? Because it's not. It's, it can be an ego deflator when someone is going to be realistic and honest with you. And you have to overcome that, correct?
2: Absolutely. Um, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, these building blocks and anything that you do it, 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 it is based on the assumption that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get that done. And what that means is that sometimes you have to hear things that you didn't want to hear that's exactly what it means and they they are ego deflators just like you said which is why it's important to have somebody around that's going to inflate your ego no matter what to do. <laughs> I give you that positivity that's right. it all it all really kind of balances out very nicely but when you have that support system and it actually gets into sync and it takes a while to set this up correctly you know you need patience once you have this all set up and it's running smoothly um, that it becomes really phenomenal. And, and I am just fortunate that I was born into a support system that's like this. This was one of the steps that was a given for me. I didn't have to work on it. It was just, it was just always there. I, to be honest with you, took it for granted and, you know, never really appreciated into, you know, day when I was 16 and my entire support system just vanished. But, uh, a lot of people, Um, especially in the United States, Uh, they're so distant from their neighbors, their friends, their family, their college friends, that that support system is becoming weaker and weaker. And I'm afraid that with the expansion of social media and social networks, we have this illusion of closeness and relationships and support. And that becomes, Mm. to me, a big problem. You know, it's, it's wonderful that you have 100 people um, like your brand new logo, or your new book, or your new story that mm-hmm. you wrote on Facebook, that's wonderful. But are they really going to support you through that process of writing the book, publishing, publishing the book, right. and going through your career? So good point. So the support system is, is extremely important. And then once you have that support system built in, once you have that first big basic uh, building block, then what the second building log just kind of naturally starts to roll in. You start hearing these positive things if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, so you find a weakest link and let's say it's it's uh, you know you have a you want to write a book, but it's very difficult for you to do it so you you actually uh, work on it with your support system and individuals in there, and you start seeing that you're improving as you're improving what your support system is going to give you. Whether you like it or not, whether you thought about it or not, they're going to start shifting your perspective into a positive one and creating the second building block, which is a positivity. And that is the ability to see any situation, no matter how hard it is, a positive one. You know, we talked a little bit about my injury and um, when I was 16 and sitting on a, on a, on a wall while five of my friends were instantly killed and, and I was severely injured. And, you know, how do we look at that posit- situation positively? Uh, do we look at ourselves as victims or do we look at ourselves as victors? And it is a matter of perspective that you are in control of at any given moment that you can choose whether to stay positive or not. Right. And that support system plays, plays a great role in providing you that positivity, so you when the when the, things get really hard, no matter what you're doing, you actually stay positive and you see the light at the end of that tunnel. Okay, so that is the the second building block. Once you have the two first building block, which is support system, and then you have this positivity. What naturally just develops, you almost don't even have to work on it. It's, it's crazy. And that's how you know you're going through this, this process correctly, is that you're, you're positive now about what you're doing. You've got the great people around you. You feel good about yourself. And all of a sudden, you're starting to realize your potential. And that is the third building block, realizing your potential. Hey. You, you, you now feel like you can do anything you because you can confidence you know? absolutely you you, you it, that's exactly what happens you 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 have surrounded yourself with with the wonderful people around you you've got this great attitude and i always tell people any negatively just shun it out of your life you mm-hmm. don't need it anybody's dragging on you i don't c- care how close in proximity they are or how close in the blood relationships they are um, you know, I have few relatives who are very negative, um, yeah. who are family members, but I don't speak with them because they're just so negative, you know, and I and I just, you know, they may be good for them, but it's not good for me. And, uh, you, you know, what happens is you end up having this really wonderful outlook and this outlook, like I said, leads you to realizing that potential and being able to say to yourself, you know what? I can do anything I want. I see that the only matter of it is for me to decide what is it that I want to do. And this is a very important and amazing building block to reach. Because when you see when you reach that potential building block and when you realize that that moment and there's just a shift when you actually wake up one day and you, you feel so good, like you could conquer the world. Kind of like the way we felt when we were 16, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Right.
2: Where did that go? That's (laughs) that's what I was always in the search for. I'm like, no, I don't want to give it up. I don't care that I'm almost 40. I need it. I'm addicted. You know, you feel like that. You feel that euphoria and, and you feel so good and you've got all those endorphins running. That's when people actually start making changes true changes in their lives they start making career changes and they say you know what i'm not going to do what everyone thinks i can do i'm going to do what i want to do and and that is to me a number 1 reason to happiness and to follow these building blocks is so you can do what you want to do and not go to work miserable not go to work unhappy not go through life just going through the motions and just getting things done because i don't know that's what you're supposed to do um when that potential gets realized you actually start doing things that you want and and your your world literally just opens up so that is the, the third building block, which is the potential. So we've just to recap a little bit, first we had a big building block of creating a support system. Then we, on top of that, developed positivity, which then essentially led into us realizing our potential to be able to do anything we want to do. And sometimes people get stuck on this step. Now they realize like a 16-year-old, you know what? I can do anything I want. What is it that I want to do, you know? I want to be a congressman, right? Well, the next thing is after this euphoria is like, okay, well what do I do Monday? You know? How do I start? How do I mm-hmm. how do I start this big venture? And this is where the following step is extremely important, and that is the building block of small steps. That is you have to break down anything you want to do into smaller tasks as you possibly can. And I'll just use a, a very quick example from my personal life. When I was first injured, I was I didn't walk for so long that I literally forgot how to walk. I That's had to good, learn yeah, it. I one. had to learn it, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's literally I didn't know how to take a step. Um, something that is so innate to everybody. Right. And it, it took. But 15 years later, I was... I actually found myself running a marathon marathon. <laughs> and I finished this marathon. And to be perfectly honest with you, I mean, I, I was that sixteen year old that they could conquer mm. anything. And if somebody told me at that moment, hey, uh, we need to get you ready for a marathon, I would have said, You freaking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I need to learn how to stand first. Mm. And that's why it's so important you break it down. Okay, I want to run a marathon. What do I need to do? I need to be running, I need to be in a good shape. Okay, and if I need to be running, what do I need? to do i need to be walking if i need to be walking what do i need to do i need to be standing and that's exactly how my my thing started i learned first how to stand and let me tell you it was a practice it took about a week for me to just learn how to stand and then i i would actually literally physically pick up my legs and i would move one leg at a time with my arms just to make the step motion to try to teach my muscles to actually take one little step at a time. And that took, I mean, it took 15 years to run that marathon. But it was okay, because it was broken down in small steps. And I didn't really concern myself. I had that goal at the end, just like you could have a goal, let's say you want to be a congressman, or you want to write a book, or it doesn't really matter what you're trying to do. You have that goal in mind, and just know that you're going to reach it. But you kind of day to day on Monday, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Mm you think about that tiny little step because when you break it down into a small step, it just doesn't seem so bad. You know, if you want to write a book, you say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to write a paragraph and you write a paragraph. It's not so scary, is it? And then you write another one tomorrow. And and you know what, a year later you have, you know, 365 paragraphs (laughs) and that's a book. And you actually got there without a huge efforts and thinking about it and over your, overwhelming yourself with this book and, and, and so on. So that's the fourth building block is the small steps.
1: I suppose sometimes people think that they can skip that as well because they, they now are in a place where they're feeling their uh, positive potential. And they think that they don't have to do the small steps, but can take the giant steps and then they end up going backwards.
2: Absolutely. You hit it. You hit it, Carol. I mean, that is a a big pitfall for everybody. And it's not just now they feel good. There are two things. One, you feel good, like you can do anything. You think you can take three steps at a time. Uh, But another thing is that that you can almost taste that reward. You want it. You want to write that book sooner than later. You, you want to get to where you are in your career sooner than later. You're so anxious to get there. You're wanting to rush through the process. And often it ends up being twice as long if you try to rush because you just can't, you end up making mistakes, you know. I always say to people, it's kind of like, it's like when you're driving the car. The faster you drive the car when you get in an accident, the bigger the accident that's kind of how I look at it <laughs> right you know, it, it just it just it just multiplies by that amount of the speed if you go at five miles an hour and you've hit a pole, well you know what you might have some bumper issues depending if you're driving an SUV right. or a truck but if you go on 80 miles an hour let me see it's going to multiply about that many times that's so a good any- analogy absolutely any bump in the road it's going to be much much easier and and that's exactly why it's so important you might end up having five small steps that you take that are really easy you know what it was very easy for me to actually stand up and all i had to do was learn to balance and i would just stand in front of my wheelchair and stand it was easy it was it was actually also boring you know, mm-hmm. that's another thing we run into. But the you still had to do it. But you still had to do it because if I if <laughs> I tried to walk without learning how to stand, I might fall down. I might get discouraged and never go walk again and say, you know what? That's it. I lost my leg in the war and I got injured and I'm going to be in a wheelchair from now on. But no, you, you just have to go little by little. And the best weight that I found to make sure that I stay on task. And stay true to the smallest step that I possibly can is actually to reward myself after each step. So if I say to myself, "Oh, I'm going to stand, you know, in this wheelchair for uh, 10 minutes without sitting down," um, I would say, "Okay, well, I'm going to get an extra cookie, or I'm going to, you know, play it. Okay. I used to okay. play a huge. I was a, I'm a huge still fan of Nintendo and okay. Super, Super Mario Brothers, and so <laughs> I would say, okay, I get to play, you know, one extra." hour of that or or something like that but you kind of reward yourself and everybody has those things Mm. that we guilty pleasures that we want and those guilty pleasures you know you can you know you can kind of justify and by doing this you reward yourself and um, you kind of start soothing and helping yourself move along the process much easier
1: and that leads right into the next step
2: absolutely the next step is discipline what everybody misses is you have, in order to be successful, you have to be disciplined. Mm-hmm. I don't care who in that's the world right. you are; that's the number one thing they're going to tell you: discipline, hard work, discipline, hard work. And what what the problem is that, and I'll start I'll start with, with something that's common for everybody today is diets. You know, people are constantly trying to diet. They're trying to change their lifestyle. They want to lose weight. Some people might want to gain weight, but you're you're struggling. And what everybody fails in is because of lack of discipline. And, and that is an obvious example why that fails is because they haven't broken it down into small steps. It's very difficult mm. to make a huge change and stay disciplined. But it's very easy to make a small change and stay disciplined. For example... If you're trying to lose weight and you want to eat healthy, most people are going to say, "Okay, starting Monday, I am going to go work out at the gym two times a week, or three times a week. Some of us get really, you know, yeah, I'm going to go for it. I can do it three <laughs> times a week because that's what I used to do in college, right? And uh, I'm going to I'm going to eat better food every single day, or or almost every meal. And then what we do is. Out of 100 percent of our waking time, waking time, time that we're awake, we've changed essentially 70, 80 percent of it. And it's extremely difficult to with such a huge change to actually stay disciplined. You're you're bound to fail. It's just a matter of time. You know, it's kind of like gravity. It's going to happen. It's going to pull you down. Eventually, you're just going to give in. But if you want to stay disciplined, you've got to have that building block right before, which is the small steps. And um, so with the case of diet, if you say to yourself, you know what, I'm starting Monday. I'm going to just work out one day a week. I mean, just, just one hour. Right. And you might even do it Monday morning, so you're done with it. You don't even have to think about it. And that that becomes so easy that you don't even think about it anymore. And then you actually add another thing to it. Let's say you say on Mondays, I work out, you know, after I work out, I think I'm going to have a salad. And you, you do it like that until that becomes so, you get used to it. It just becomes such a second nature that it's no longer something you think about. You're creating this, a habit. Exactly. You then you then introduce the third step. And that is why the building block of small steps is so important in order for you to be disciplined. And a discipline then is it just becomes a habit. It's natural. Why would you why would you not do it? You know, because now, you know, uh, it's now six months later. And now let's say you're having you're working out slowly on Monday, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. And you're having salads, three of those meals. You've actually changed your life. That's right. And you've stayed disciplined this entire time. And you don't even feel it.
1: I thought of an interesting analogy as you were talking about that. When someone wins the lottery and all of a sudden they are extremely wealthy, depending upon the size of the lottery. Very often, within two years, the money's gone and they're poor again. And I have seen this happen more than one time with people that I know because they were not used to it. They did not have the habit of structuring their spending. All of a sudden they had all this money. They didn't have to be disciplined um, anymore because they have all the money, right? right? So they end up spending it all and don't discipline the way they spend it. And they're right back maybe worse than when they started before they ever won it. And it just... When you were talking, I thought, my goodness, that's that's why that happens.
2: Well, it's interesting you use that analogy, because in my when I do speaking engagements, that is sometimes one of the analogies that I use. And that that is actually I mean, because it's exactly what happens. You 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 haven't developed the habit. It's just it's just the only way we can succeed in anything is if our environment is sort of sets us up for success. In today's environment, we have everything working against us. Mm. So therefore, we have to create an environment where we can actually succeed. These seven building blocks allow you to create that environment. Um, And when you have uh, huge amounts of money introduced to somebody who is planning their retirement by winning a lottery, They don't have structure. They don't have discipline. They don't have that environment set up to success. So you can give them as much money as you want. They will always be short. And Mm -hmm. by the same token, I know there are quite a few uh, entrepreneurs that I've met, including me as one of them, who if you ask them the question, if they took away all your money right now, how long would it take to get get it all back? Mm -hmm. And most of them will actually tell you exact timeline. And it's usually within a year. You know, I don't, you can take everything I have, you know, and when I came to the United States, I literally had nothing. I I didn't speak any English. I had a teddy bear, which I used to bite on for pain. I had a t-shirt that I wore on me. I didn't even have a pair of shorts. I had underwear because I was so injured and I had a rock, which was a memento from a a, a bridge in the city where I'm from. So I had a teddy bear t-shirt and a rock and no English, and I created this nice, Um, very comfortable life for me and if I went there again tomorrow and I had zero I would within a year I would be back exactly where I started and that's because I have created and I know how to make an environment for myself that will allow me to succeed and get to the goals that I that I want to get
1: very good analogy
2: and uh, so once you, once you do the small steps and you've now created the discipline because now you realize that you are, you know, you're able to do this and it's so easy and it's become actually part of your lifestyle, something, something what people, um, you know, I think they attribute it to very few sort of very important individuals, um, the trade, which is tenacity that develops automatically We're, we all have it in ourselves to be very tenacious and never give up when something difficult presents but it's just like i said in that environment that we have presented everything sort of work against us so it's it's hard to kind of stay tenacious you just kind of want to give up um, but if you follow these building blocks and now you discipline and if you go with it with the um with the example of our diet um you are now eating you know Three meals a week that are healthy you're working out three times a week you're seeing some of the you're seeing some of the pounds come off what Sorry. uh what happens is um you don't want to give up if you have said to yourself that you're going to lose 30 pounds and now you've only lost 15 y- y- you don't want to give up why would you give up you you've already changed your lifestyle you um you have no reason to you just kind of keep moving forward you keep moving forward because i lost 20 pounds and you know that in next eight months you're going to lose another 20 pounds and you're going to reach your goal and it's just a matter of time so giving up doesn't even come into your mind because it's just to become part of you
1: tenacity
2: yes and tenacity is the fifth building block and um the last things that we're led to once you start getting all these building blocks, which is first what we started, was the support system, which then essentially leads you to create this positive environment, which essentially then leads you to realize your potential that you can do anything. And then when you start doing whatever your goals are, you actually break that down into small steps you start developing discipline and once you have your discipline you become very tenacious and you don't want to give up because you've just you feel so good about it all of those building blocks result in that final result that you have been wanting to get whether it's losing the weight whether it is writing a book whether it's going to the moon whatever that may be you're actually you're just naturally going to get there and I hate to tell this to people, but it really is true. What I realized was that when you get the result, it does not feel like winning the lottery. You know, (laughs) most people, I think, expect this big bang. Okay, I've done I've done these six building blocks and now this result is going to come and it's going to feel so good, like somebody reads off the numbers and and, and your name was pulled and now you're into this stuff. It actually is not going to feel like anything. It, it because you're just going to get there and you're going to take it for granted almost well, because you expect it. You've expect it. you been doing it. There's you, you never even considered that it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of cross that threshold and say, okay, now that's done. What do I do next? Start over. And, <laughs> exactly. You start on another goal. I mean, that's why, that's why anybody can do anything. I mean, I wish I had five lives because I had so many things I would <laughs> love to do because I ne- you know, I know I can do everything. I want to do and I you know the crazy thing out of all this what I realized was that every individual can do anything they want I am not special there's nothing absolutely nothing special about me if you cut up our embryos when we were born. And if you looked at my DNA and if you looked at all the cells that are running in my body and if we put my brain on a scale with anybody else's brain, it's all the same. These variances are so, so small and so insignificant that really we can all do anything we put our minds to. I just happen to be privileged that I know anybody can do anything that they want to do and that's really why I go and I do these speaking engagements and I and I talk to people because I want them to realize that they can do anything and just follow these building blocks and and reach whatever goals they may have
1: like you said in the beginning this can be applied to any area of your life you know you mentioned diet and you mentioned um, you know writing a book or whatever but they are so simple to follow and you made them exquisitely clear um, do you have this in, on your website or um, a book or any place else that someone can take this and absorb it?
2: I actually am working on a book and I think probably by the time this show airs I will have something ready. In okay. fact just for your listeners what I will do I will write I will work with uh with my content writer and what we'll do is we'll create um a handout for your audience and they might be able to go to your website or my okay. website okay. and download something along these lines that they can that I can actually use.
1: That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Thank you.
2: And I'm always open for any – if anybody wants to contact me, they need to, you know, talk through something or need some ideas, I'm always open. Um, I always say to people, this is my time now to pay it back. And uh, that's that's what I'm doing. So anybody that needs any kind of help, I am more than happy to help.
1: And that is very gracious of you. This has been a long um, podcast, but – It's worth every single second, and I hope that the listeners will listen to the entire thing even more than once, because not only did you inspire us through your your story of your life, but you also motivated us, so it's a twofold. We were inspired and definitely motivated, and as you said, and not to belittle you in any way, shape, or form, you're not special.
2: Right, That's right.
1: <laughs> you're, you're focused and anybody can be focused and so many of the things that you said I want to share on the website because there's so many little tidbits that I think we can all take and use along with your building blocks. You have given us a formula to success and I think many people in many areas in many walks of life, whether we are a stay-at-home mom or a, an entrepreneur. We need a formula to be successful, excuse me, in whatever we set our foot and our hands to do. You have given us a formula of success, which we all need, and we thank you. And your story has enlightened, inspired, and motivated. We are going to talk to you again, hopefully within the year, and by then you'll have your more to share, I'm sure, and you'll have your book, right?
2: Great. Right, I'm, I'm hoping. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm hoping I need to be working. <laughs> okay,
1: yeah, get to work. <laughs> okay, and I thank you, Maya. And I'm thank also you, going Carol. to put some of the videos uh, from YouTube onto your site because I know that'll be an inspiration to our listeners as well. So thank you again. It has been indeed a pleasure.
2: Thank you very much, Carol, for having me. I'm happy to come back anytime. And as I said, I am just a phone call away. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you.